It was just over six months ago when a tragedy amplified deep issues within the Greensboro community. A kitchen fire quickly swept through a low-rent apartment there, claiming the lives of five young children, siblings who were refugees from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But the circumstances leading up to the blaze live on in the fractured lives of the surviving parents and in their adopted community. Questions linger. This is Unsafe Haven. This back alley parking lot, riddled with potholes and broken glass, is behind a sprawling, spartan, 42-unit apartment complex. Cars wind their way between overflowing dumpsters and small bands of young refugee children from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. While their parents are off working long shifts at factories and poultry processing plants many miles away, these kids are left largely unsupervised, zooming up and down the dirty sidewalk on makeshift scooters and occasionally onto one of the city's most heavily trafficked intersections, Cone Boulevard and Summit Avenue. On a hot afternoon at the Summit Cone Apartments, a few older adults huddle in the barren courtyard, periodically looking on from their seats on the red clay beneath a few scrawny shade trees. Across the way, in clear view of the group, plywood boards cover the blackened windows and rear door of apartment G. This is the site of the early morning fire of May 12th that swept through the home of Mugabo Emmanuel and his wife, Faraha Lucy. And a warning, the audio from the 911 call you're about to hear from the scene of that fire may be disturbing to young listeners. What is the address of your emergency? For weeks after the fire that claimed five young lives, the front entrance here was covered with weathered sympathy cards, balloons, and handwritten notes. Today, the only reminder is the charred brick facade and soot-stained pillars. The fire department conducted dozens of interviews. It took months to investigate the unit's circuit breakers, smoke alarms, and stovetop burners. Finally, the cause of the fire was determined. Accidental, due to unattended cooking. But the final report also states that certainty may not be an absolute or without any doubts, and accusations of a faulty stove, burners that wouldn't shut off for hours, and an inattentive landlord continue to swirl. If the landlord can't respond to what you need is terrible. It's like the landlord is killing you, okay, little by little. That's Louis Mashengo. His friends, Mugabo and Faraha, are still too devastated by their loss to discuss it with media. But Mashengo is speaking out about living conditions at Summit Cone. The former educator is soft-spoken, fluent in several languages, and a leader in the African community here. His cell phone is practically attached to his hand, constantly texting and advising local residents, sometimes, he says, until 2 or 3 in the morning. Much of the advice Mashengo offers comes from hard lessons he's learned from personal experience battling the landlord since his arrival here two years ago. He says he complained to property managers for weeks about foul odors at his apartment and nothing happened. 
After two months, he and four other tenants signed a petition requesting that all 42 Summit Cone units be inspected. It arrived at the city's code compliance office, inspectors were dispatched, and they soon discovered major problems in his basement. It was too hard to prepare food here because of bad smelling. We tried, okay, sometimes you have to go and buy fresh air, but you are doing that, you are using your money for nothing. The money that maybe you could keep, okay, for other issue, but we have to do it for fresh air because of what? because of the bad condition. And sometimes the deworms was coming from the basement. Yeah, because this basement was full of the sewage. Mashango, like most of his countrymen, fled a brutal civil war and lived for years in refugee and asylum situations in surrounding African nations. And with little or no freedom of movement, access to land or legal employment, he waited for his chance at a better life. In 2016, Mashango and dozens of Congolese refugees like him arrived in Greensboro, penniless, with limited English, and little grasp of the vastly different culture he encountered. At Rankin Elementary School in Greensboro, Emily Wright was a school social worker who was there to help. She provided guidance and support for Mashango, his friends Mugabu Emanuel, Faraha Lucy, and their children from their first day of school. Wright says this is a story she feels personally. One was a first grader and the other was a second grader. They were little girls. When they came into the school, they didn't have backpacks. They didn't have appropriate school clothing. They would be wearing pajamas and cowboy boots and so I got to know the families and these this family has suffered they have suffered unimaginably and they continue to suffer Louis Mashango says the Emanuels and the children's grandparents moved from Summit Cone following the tragedy and won't go back he says it pains him to send photos of his current surroundings home the way people they treat America, they treat America that is on top. <laughs> but when you send a picture, oh, oh my gosh, no, this is not America, you know. Because honestly, I can say, okay, in Africa I found some city, they are more beautiful than here. But it's in Africa. Mashango packs up his car and gets ready to help some friends find new apartments nearby. He'll serve as a translator and help with the necessary paperwork. Mashango has adapted to his new environment and says he's determined to lift up his fellow refugees from the DR Congo in their new home, Greensboro, North Carolina. This is Unsafe Haven. I'm David Ford. Every home in Greensboro, owner or tenant occupied, must meet minimum housing standards. They've got to be safe, sanitary, and fit for human habitation. But often, even those basic thresholds are not being met. To find out what that looks like and why, I set out on a routine home inspection with Interim Division Manager Mark Wayman. All right. First thing we're going to go over to is... um 
property over on Huffman Street that we've got. One of our we arrive at a tree-lined street dotted with small rental homes and various states of disrepair. City nuisance contractor Bruce Glass is sawing plywood out front. Bruce is securing a few windows for us. The owners had more than 12 days to take care of this and they have not. Wayman says the missing windows and an open crawl space are ideal entry points for rodents, children, and homeless adults. He scans the scene and ticks off a long list of code violations, like a crumbling front porch foundation, gaping roofline holes, and a vandalized electrical panel. It would take more than five minor violations or one major violation uh, to start a case, and I think we definitely have one here, just at a glance. Coincidentally, the day after this, what was truly a random home inspection tour, Wayman called to inform me that the owner of the small rental we visited just happens to be Irene Agapian Martinez of Arco Realty. That's the property management company of the Summit Cone Apartments, where the deadly fire took place. It's owned by Bill, Sophia, and Basil Agapian. This company has been in and out of the news for much of its 60-year history, often over substandard living conditions. After the fire, nearly 500 minimum housing standards code violations were discovered at Summit Cone. The entire complex was condemned the second time in less than five years. But back in 1963, to young real estate lawyer Bill Agapian, this place looked like a moneymaker. Roughly 10 years earlier, he formed AAA Realty, later Arco Realty, in a converted bank building on South Elm Street. Specializing in low-income housing for people with very few options, he catered to those with poor credit, recent evictions, and the underemployed. And later, at Summit Cone, immigrants and refugees. Arco's stated mission, provide quality, affordable rentals. But by the 1970s, Agapian's reputation for cutting corners was already well established. The basement was full of the sewage. We say, there are the mouths in this building. It is not safe for the refugee to live here. But time called to come in house because my window is broken. It starts since May and they come to fix it, it was July. Bill Agapian has a well-documented history of postponing necessary repairs, bringing his apartments up to minimum code just in time to avoid demolition. Three years ago, journalist Eric Ginsberg reported that the Agapian family, through their hundreds of Greensboro properties, had accumulated nearly $350,000 in outstanding fines. This is a landlord who is not doing anything proactive to make sure people are living in safe conditions. Ginsburg says neighborhoods and the city itself pay for blighted apartments, depressing property values, the ability to attract new employers, and the jobs that come with them. This is someone who does the minimal amount that they have to and that they only make those minimal changes when they're caught by the city. And that has a huge cost for the rest of us. WFDD reached out to the Agapians on multiple occasions to request interviews for this story. Those requests were denied, but finally a written statement was provided through their attorney's office. It says many of the criticisms aren't true and don't tell the whole story, and reiterates that the Greensboro Fire Department concluded that the fire was a result of unattended cooking by tenants. 
It goes on to say that Arco Realty will continue to work to provide safe, affordable housing and to improve and maintain the properties it manages. But for city officials and inspectors who have dealt with the Agapians over the years, accruing multiple violations and delaying repairs until the last possible moment is a familiar pattern, but not an illegal one. Former Greensboro Chief Code Enforcement Officer Beth Benton describes her office's relationship with Irene Agapian Martinez as cooperative. From my perspective, if you own hundreds and hundreds of properties, you're going to have violations. That just kind of comes with the territory. Benton blames some of the backlog in tenant complaints in apartments primarily populated with refugees on language barriers, education, and the process itself. They don't realize that they have another option, that they can call us if the landlord is not being responsive. The other thing, a lot of immigrants and refugees settling here often see code officers. We are a form of government. We are a form of police. Um, So we are not welcome. It creates fear from where they're from as political refugees. And the code violations continue to accumulate. Members of the Agapian family are currently being sued by the widow of a plumber electrocuted while working in the crawl space of a rental property managed by Arco Realty. The suit alleges that the electrical system had bare wires and was dangerously below code. Bill, Sophia, and Basil Agapian responded in nearly identical filings denying those claims. Decade after decade, the Agapians have made unwanted newspaper headlines. 2006, judge signs city order to demolish several Arco homes on Garrett Street. 1992, dozens of refugees from Vietnam settle at Summit Cone Apartments, which had been condemned and vacant. 1987, survey shows 200 of the city's 250 boarded-up houses are owned by Agapians. And the paper trail dates back as far as 1970, when hundreds of AAA realty tenants staged a three-month rent strike. Some marched past the Agapian South Elm office holding signs that read, When does this city plan to do something? To find out more about one contributing factor in continued non-compliance by landlords, we have to rewind the clock when the state laws changed that made it more difficult for the city to prevent the abuses from happening in the first place. For a while, we had RUCO. That's the Rental Unit Certificate of Occupancy. And Mayor Nancy Vaughn says RUCO was groundbreaking in holding more landlords accountable, and it served as a model for other cities. We were able to go in and do proactive inspections of units before people rented them. And then the legislature took that away, not only from Greensboro, who pioneered that legislation, but from the entire state, which took away one of the tools in our toolbox. So by 2012, RUCO was no more, and many city officials, as well as housing advocates, lamented the loss. But RUCO was far from perfect, and it ruffled a lot of feathers, particularly among those in the real estate sector who felt they were being overregulated. It was an across-the-board program, inspecting A- and B-class properties that were rarely out of code compliance nearly as often as C-class properties, run by landlords with long-standing histories of non-compliance. With RUCO gone, city code inspectors were invited to investigate properties only after receiving complaints from residents or petitions, as was the case at Summit Cone. 
After inspections, problems are identified to the owners who are then given two months or more to correct them. If no action is taken, the building can be condemned as a last resort, followed by civil penalties and fines levied to further entice them to comply. If the owners still don't make repairs, it can be pricey, with escalating reinspection fees eventually totaling $400 per unit per month. And the last, last resort, demolition. But when buildings are condemned, people can't live in them. And that just makes the dearth of affordable housing even worse, says City Councilman Justin Outling. The fact is there are 26,000 households in our community where people are not able to afford the price they pay for housing. That's why, after negotiations with housing advocates and real estate officials, the city passed a $25 million bond referendum to support more affordable housing. That's helping to fund this 176-unit apartment community in East Greensboro called Cottage Grove. It's being refurbished with a $400,000 investment from the city for energy-efficient upgrades. Then in October, the city council passed a new housing ordinance. Outling says it will target substandard properties like the Summit Cone Apartments. That property was in compliance as of 2016. Uh, we know now 2018, a mere two years later, it's woefully out of compliance. This revision to the housing ordinance will help address situations like that one to ensure that properties stay in compliance for a longer period of time. Outling says that unlike RUCO, this new ordinance allows the city to inspect all units of an apartment complex where just one serious threat to safety was found. It also gives them permission to follow up with multiple rollover inspections there over the course of one year without having to start back at the beginning. Scheduling, notifications, hearings, demolitions. Are we doing enough? The answer is no, but we're making tremendous progress. If you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. On this topic, we have to go really far, really fast. This is Unsafe Haven. I'm David Ford. Let's go back to the beginning for a moment. How do refugees find housing here? And why do they sometimes wind up in places like Summit Cone? Hey, Yusuf. How are you doing? Can you come in? Hi. Good to meet you. The Al-Kasrachis are Iraqi refugees who fled violence in Baghdad and arrived at Piedmont Triad International Airport with limited English and even less knowledge of their surroundings. Thankfully, they have support. Refugee resettlement agencies and their partners pick families up at the airport, provide temporary housing, access to basic services, and sociocultural support. Nonprofits like Every Campus a Refuge. Here, an ECAR volunteer is tutoring seventh grader Abdullah in social studies to help him acclimate. What definition of crown best fits its use in the second paragraph? They're not saying the um, the regular crown that you wear right. on your hair. They're saying, like, the kings and queens. And what's another word Greensboro for has been welcoming refugees for 40-plus years, and during that time, it's developed a strong infrastructure for supporting newcomers, especially given the city's small size. But support at the national level is a different story, says ECAR founder Dia Abdo. It allows for a very short period of time for adjustment, three months, um, it provides very limited financial support for people to gain self-sufficiency. And so I think we need to look at the refugee resettlement program in general and the kinds of support that refugees are getting from the federal government. 
To make up for the lack in federal assistance, resettlement agencies are having to get creative. But North Carolina African Services Coalition Executive Director Million McConan says even after leveraging community-wide support systems, one challenge looms over the rest, housing. It's very tough. I don't know how you can put safe and affordable together. Resources are very limited. And we don't find that many landlords that make an exception. And even when landlords are willing to meet a refugee's bottom line, there may be trade-offs. Holly Sinkovitz is the research director for UNC Greensboro's Center for New North Carolinians. There they provide additional support for refugees once resettlement services expire. She says ARCO needed to fill units and saw an opportunity. They contacted resettlement agencies offering a discount for refugees to be placed there. They essentially waived the security deposits and they gave them one month rent free, which is essentially saving each client $1,000. That's a pretty big deal when refugees come with such limited cash assistance available. Sinkovitz says agency walkthroughs revealed no red flags and leases were signed. Andrew Young was a UNCG Community Research Fellow at the center for several years. He says what's lacking among the various resettlement agencies is not goodwill, but something more basic. In a public meeting before city council members and agencies, uh, one of the refugees questioned the system. Uh, He stood up and quietly said, um, I only have one question, and that is before refugees are settled here, Uh, Is there any coordination? And the room went quiet. Here's a snapshot of what these agencies are up against. The immigration debate, funding cuts, and recently lowered caps on the number of refugees allowed into the country, which tightens their purse strings even more. So, Young says local government officials need to develop a bigger game plan beginning with affordable housing. It seems to be more of a system of holes rather than real structure. I mean, if you imagine like a Swiss cheese and it's a lot of holes, well, I believe we have a system which is mostly holes. But there are efforts underway, and now there's a renewed sense of urgency. A large, brightly lit lobby is filled with African refugees, many in colorful native garb, and some accompanied by interpreters. Sitting behind folding tables are representatives from Legal Aid, Guilford County Schools, Community Care Network, and others. But most are here to find a place to live. We only have a few property managers here so far. We think that more are coming. However, this is just one step in the process of helping the residents from across the street get into a new apartment. That's Greensboro Housing Coalition's Brett Byerly, pausing for interpreters as landlords hand out brochures and renters' applications. This is the city's first landlord fair. Byerly says the need for affordable housing has never been greater. After the Summit Cone apartments across the street were condemned, these families were given just four weeks to relocate. We're saying to people, we will give your landlord $1,500 for your first month's rent and your security deposit, if you can just find a place to move into and they're not coming back to us because they can't find a place to move into, that really tells you a good piece of the story. There's money sitting on the table that they're not able to use because the affordable housing stock is just not there. By affordable, he means three bedroom units for about $800 a month or less. (laughs) 
For the Al-Kasrachi family, just three young boys and their parents, finding this small apartment was challenging but doable, says Dia Abdo. But I've noticed that the folks that we've hosted on our campus from the DRC or Uganda tend to have larger families, multi-generational families, and affordable housing for larger families can be very, very hard to find. So finding a house or an apartment for nine members, 10 members, 11 members is incredibly difficult. This is Unsafe Haven. I'm David Ford. After the deadly fire at Summit Cone, the parents and family members mourned, but they haven't grieved alone. At the Mount Zion Baptist Church in Greensboro, a homegoing service is getting underway. Mourners walk slowly across the sprawling parking lot, a sea of colorful, traditional African dresses against the gray, overcast sky. The sound of Swahili being translated into English blares out across the asphalt from loudspeakers attached to the enormous modern church, welcoming new arrivals. Even those who come from in America, wherever you are, wave to us, wave to us. Many of them now call North Carolina home, but they come from Sudan, Uganda, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and elsewhere on the African continent. More than 400 visitors, family members, and friends enter the church, led by the parents of the deceased children, Mugabu Emmanuel and Faraha Lucy. We know that everybody has been weakened in his heart. They gather close together on pews, facing five small caskets, holding the three little boys and two little girls who perished in the fire. But this service is a celebration of their lives, their journey to heaven, and soon the auditorium is filled with song. Before the still mourning Congolese family left Summit Cone, dozens of local African refugees gathered near their burned out apartment for a healing ceremony. The sounds of terrified screams replaced by singing voices ringing out across the courtyard. Since the fire, the broader community has rallied around the family. The Greensboro Housing Coalition, in partnership with the Community Foundation, provided financial assistance to help the parents and their extended relatives relocate. Coalition Director Brett Byerly says it's work that needed to be done. And imagine the emotional aspect of, of seeing that every day. I have to walk past this apartment where five children that I'm related to died and, and how that affects my mental health and stability. So it was important for the Housing Coalition um, to work to get those families into a place where they can kind of um, grieve and, and work on what they're going to do next in their life and where they want to go and where they want to be. Faith communities throughout the city upped their commitment to supporting Summit Cone refugee families, aiding in relocation efforts from the condemned buildings, settling families into new apartments, providing essentials, and raising donations. A Greensboro House Fire GoFundMe page set up on their behalf netted more than $55,000. And church groups, educators, and individuals volunteered daycare for young children of refugee parents who often work long shifts far from home. Greensboro church leaders like First Baptist's Alan Schiraus spoke to his congregation about the deadly fire. He focused on the poor living conditions of many of the city's refugees and the moral obligation the community has to right this wrong. 
He says that's what a shared faith means and what the New Testament is all about, where Jesus says, when you welcome the stranger, you are welcoming me. Chirau spoke at the homegoing service for the Congolese children who died in the fire. The gathering was intended to be a celebration of young lives, and yet, lining the front of the stage are five small white caskets, each adorned with bright yellow flowers, a startling reminder of the horrible loss. Part of my response has been to carefully consider all of the dynamics that led to this moment, because if we dismiss it only as an accident, that allows us to set it aside as though there's nothing we can do about it. And I feel that there are a lot of factors that lead to a tragedy like this that we need to consider carefully as a community. Congolese refugee Louis Mashengo is a close friend of the family whose children died. He says there's one question that keeps him up at night, and he pauses to choose his words carefully. What can we do to promote the refugees community? Among us, we have lawyers. Among us, we have doctors. Among us, we have pastors. We have musicians. We have draftmen. Okay. But we need to promote it to another level. In some parts of Africa, the traditional greeting is, how are the children? The welcoming community of Greensboro is still working toward the hope for reply, all the children are well. For WFDD News, I'm David Ford. See you.